What, did you lose your place? That's hard to do, man. All you have to do is, I'm not going to start bantering. we got to get into the Word of God. Guys, I'm so glad that we serve a God who makes all things new. Amen? Who is gracious forgiveness in, in, in forgiveness. He restores our souls. He's full of mercy. And so I just want to encourage you as we make our way into 2024, let's not be anchored by, let's not be tethered to the highs or the lows of 2023. But rather, let's follow after the apostles' example who said, One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so let the inspiration be sifted to the forefront of your heart to lay hold of all of that for which Christ has laid hold of you. And I'm just encouraging you to put your best foot forward for the glory of Jesus Christ. And to get involved, Christianity is not a spectator sport, man. Do the work of an evangelist. Share the hope of Jesus Christ with those around you. Be intentional about inviting folks out to church that they might hear the gospel. Maybe you're uncertain, you're, you're not sure. We'll bring some folks with you. They'll hear the gospel. They'll be saved. I'm encouraging you, step up, step out. If you're not serving anywhere or in any way in the body to which God has called you, man, do it. Be a blessing. Build up and edify others because in serving them, you're serving the Lord who said, assuredly, I say to you, in as much as you did it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it to me. And I want to tell you that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your service toward the saints does not go unnoticed by God, and great will be your reward. Uh, the author of, the, of Hebrews said that this way. He said, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So grab hold of the plow and don't look back. Full on from the heart for Jesus Christ. Amen. That's my encouragement as we step into the year. So now let's turn our eyes. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 48, beginning in verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by my name or called by the name uh, of Israel and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just spent the last few minutes exhorting and encouraging you to serve God full on from the heart. And I have no doubt that Isaiah would echo the same sentiment here because what he's dealing with is optics, with appearances, with outward show versus inward reality. We know it. Our, the word we use is hypocrisy. It is image apart from integrity. And God is reminding them here that though man may look to the outward appearance, he searches the heart. And somewhere in there is the idea that you may have everyone else fooled, but I know, God says, what's really going on. And that's why he addresses them as the house of Jacob who have come forth from the wellspring of Judah. Family, this was not an honorable address. 
The father of the nation of Israel, Jacob, was known as a deceiver, as a cheater. He lived by his own wit. He kind of made his own way until he had an encounter with the living God that changed him forever. And that's when God changed his name from Jacob or deceiver to Israel, which means governed by God. And that's why God says, who are called by the name of Israel. He's saying, you have this, listen to me, you have this reputation, but it's not reality. You take on the appearance of being governed by God, but you're deceitful. It's not true. You don't follow me. You don't honor me. You don't serve me. You have Listen, you have Israel's name, but you have Jacob's character. As for Judah, historically, guys, do some research. His reputation wasn't the best either. He was known for his cruelty, for his immorality. What are we seeing? God shines a light on reality. You make mention of the God of Israel, underline it, but not in truth or in righteousness. This was a timely word for the nation of Israel in their day. I suspect perhaps an even more timely word for the United States of America in our day. If there's one thing the modern media culture has intoxicated and indoctrinated our nation in, it's that it's completely acceptable to have a public image or appearance of one thing, even though the personal reality is something altogether different. We will overlook or excuse the truth if we agree with or are intrigued by the image or the appearance of a thing or a person, even in the church. Guys, we are not in the habit of holding people's proverbial feet to the fire. I mean, if you look like a Christian, whatever that looks like, right, to you, uh, you go to church, you sing the songs, you play the part. If someone looks like a Christian, we don't really examine much, if any, deeper than that. We're content to look to the outward appearance you know, I was thinking about this. I was reminded, maybe you remember, you can recall the scene in your mind's eye. There he was. It was your Lord and mine. Jesus was there and he was overturning the tables of the money changers. He was driving out the business dealers in the temple. And when he was finished, he went ahead, he went out and he uh, retreated, if you will, to Bethany where he was going to stay the night. And then the next morning we read he got up, he was going to return into the city. But as he was making his way into the city of Jerusalem, he was hungry. And so there he was, and he looked, and he saw this fig tree a short distance away, and it appeared to be in full bloom. And so he came to it. He got right up, let's say, close and personal with it, and he examined what was happening underneath the surface. He dug past the leaves, if you will, and he found what? Nothing. He found nothing on it. It had the appearance of life, but look a little deeper, there was no fruit at all. And that's 
the story of so many in the church today. And when Jesus saw that, do you remember what he said? He said, let no fruit grow on you ever again. What's the take home? Jesus does not take deception lightly. We concern ourselves with the outside of the cup, right? Matthew 25. When the Lord places priority on the inside of the vessel, that's to be poured into and out through. Do you understand what I'm saying? Listen, it's one thing to look the part, but it's another thing altogether to be the part. Think in terms like this. True salvation, listen to me, true salvation always brings transformation. Okay? Salvation brings transformation. The grace of God that saves your soul, yes, will change your life. If you've come to believe in Jesus Christ and nothing about your life has changed, then I submit to you, you didn't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you you may have come to agree intellectually that historically there was a man who lived and died and did some great things. His name was Jesus. Maybe the whole story of the cross is true and all of that, but you haven't placed your faith in Christ personally for with the heart one believes, right? The inside. This is what we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen, not what it looks like outwardly, what's going on in reality inwardly for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. What's that mean? It means the mouth will make known what's really happening in your heart. That's why Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, but it's what comes out of his mouth because the mouth reveals the truth of the man. Does that make sense? There was a phrase. It was a, I don't know, maybe a t-shirt. It was a meme, all the things, uh, bumper sticker, I don't know. I believe it was a song lyric, got popular a year or three ago. It all runs together to me. Uh, But it went like this. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. Anybody remember this one? Sounds cute. Unacceptable to the child of God. Listen, I'm not saying that as a believer, we don't slip or stumble in word or in deed. James was clear, if, you don't, if a man never slips or stumbles in word, he's a perfect man, you know. But what I'm saying is that we don't justify it. We don't make a cute little saying of it. We're ashamed of it, man. We confess it. We repent of it. Too many people are content having an image, a public persona, You guys understand what I'm saying? David made the heart of God known when he said this, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Who you are when you think no one is looking, no one is listening, that's who you are. God would have us look to Him, lean on Him, 
in truth and in righteousness. Look at verse 3. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly uh, I did them these things that he was telling to them and they came to pass because I knew that you were obstinate and your neck was an iron sinew and your brow bronze. Even from the beginning, I have declared it to you before it came to pass. I proclaimed it to you lest you should say my idol has done them and my carved image, my molded image have commanded them. What's the principle in play here? God is all about eliminating excuses. No one will be playing the I didn't know card with God. In the book of Romans, Paul put it this way. He said, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Why? So that they, that is mankind, are without excuse. God is all about eliminating excuses. And he eliminates excuses through the enormity, the variety, the complexity of creation. It is genuinely, literally impossible that it could happen through random chance and natural selection. He eliminates excuse through what we're reading of here, the power of predictive prophecy. He states things that are going to take place that we wouldn't know, that we couldn't know if he didn't tell us, so that when they happen, we have to acknowledge the fact that he alone is God. But guys, those are kind of the peripheral points of what's being said here, that God eliminates excuses, eliminates excuses, and this is how he will oftentimes do it. But really what's in view here is the stubborn obstinate and intentionally rebellious nature of man. Mankind doesn't want to be accountable to God or responsible before God. And so they will look to give credit to just about anything or anyone else, a big bang or evolution or in this case, look at what our idols have brought to pass. Man will choose, listen to this, to willfully forget God. And to refresh your memory as to the context, he's speaking of the fact, you remember, you may recall, that they are going to be taken into captivity, uh, into Babylon. And he's saying, but it's not going to last indefinitely. He will deliver them. And he's telling them approximately 170 years in advance. So that, in other words, it would be 100 years before they go off into captivity. They'll be there for 70 years and then he will deliver them. And he's telling them this so that when it comes to pass, they're not going to give credit to their idols. They'll have to acknowledge God alone. He's saying, I know you. Listen, this may be a word for someone here today. <laughs> God says, I know you. In fact, I suspect it's a word for many of us here today. He says, you're stubborn. You're stiff-necked. You've got a brow of bronze, so I'm giving you irrefutable evidence. Now, the idea 
behind this brow of bronze. It, it could just mean hard-headed, right? Uh, but, and I don't want to read into this, I don't want to add to this or say something that's not there, but I think we're within an acceptable boundary to consider what I say. This idea of this brow of bronze, it seems to carry the idea of being unable to blush, uh, not being ashamed of the things that they should be ashamed of. I mean, think of our culture today. The things that uh, are bragged on and boasted in that should be ashamed of. Okay? In the book of Jeremiah, God is speaking to them there. Again, he was right in this kind of correlating in this same time frame. And he's speaking to them of the discipline they're receiving because they're constantly cheating on him. That is God. God is rebuking them because they're constantly cheating on him through idolatry. Do you understand that when we place something above the Lord in our hearts, remember we're talking about this, man looks at the outward appearance, God searches the heart. We place a priority in our heart above God. He considers that spiritual adultery. Because we're giving our love, again, the priority, and our loyalty, okay, to another. Be it a person or a place or a thing or whatever. And so we, we read there, therefore, God is talking about the disciplinary measures. The showers have been withheld and there has been no latter rain. You have had a, look at it, a harlot's forehead. What does that mean? You refuse to be ashamed. It's being in that place, and don't miss this now, it's being in that place whereby we know we're wrong, but we refuse to change. We're too stubborn. We're stiff-necked. We're obstinate. Be careful. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 15, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Holding on to our own way rather than submitting to God's word or God's way. It's idolatry. Uh, holding on to our own opinion, our own perspective over what he has said or shown to be true. Guys, be careful when you begin to resist the conviction of the Spirit of God. That's what, that's what we're talking about here. Because to resist conviction will lead to callousness. Uh, you'll find yourself moving into a place where you really no longer even care what God has said or what God thinks. I want you to know that guilt and shame are not against you. They are for you. Uh, they testify to the fact that God is trying to work in your life. The job description of the Holy Spirit, John chapter 16 and verse 8, if you want to look at it later, is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so don't harden your heart against it, man. Open your heart to it. Um, God is seeking to work in your life. So confess, right? We confess our sin. We repent of it. We turn from it. And we give God His way in our life. Humble yourself 
before the Lord. God resists the proud, but gives what? Grace to the humble. Okay, look at verse 6. You have heard, he goes, he says, you've heard, see all this, and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning. And before this day, you haven't heard them, lest you should say, well, of course I knew them. Uh, Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago, your ear was not open, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor. Look at this. From the womb. God says, you knew these things. You've heard it. You've seen it. You've experienced it. Yet you stubbornly have clung to your own ways rather than turn from your sin and trust in me. He says, I've even made you hear new things. I've done new works. Yet you still hold to your old ways. Now allow me for just a moment to stray, if you will, from the direct interpretation And make for you an application. It is so easy. Here's what I want you to see in what he's saying here. It is so easy for you and me that we can subtly seat ourselves or root ourselves into becoming old wineskins. We can act like or acquiesce verbally to the idea of wanting to see God do something new. But truth be told, when push comes to shove, we're pretty comfortable right where we're at. And listen to me, comfort is just one step away from complacent. Comfort is one step from complacent. How? Here's the question I'm confronting you with. How open are you to God doing a new thing in your life? How does the thought of stepping up and stepping out, treading deeper waters, exploring unfamiliar territory, how does that strike you? Does it sound exciting to you? Does it get your heart pumping a little bit? You're thinking, yeah, let's go. You know, you got that... Jonathan and his armor bearer frame of heart. Hey man, let's step up. Let's step out. Let's see what God wants to do. Who knows? Maybe God wants to do something great. Let's avail ourselves. Or do you feel more like, man, I'm too old for a new work. Uh, Or recoil into, I kind of like a steady paycheck. Or, hey man, why, why rock the boat? Things are, are, are fine. Or, you know, I feel like, it, I don't know, maybe it'd be annoying or maybe embarrassing. Do you, do you see how we can be glued to our ways rather than laying hold of his ways? Guys, listen, God loves you. We start thinking like this, like, I don't know, man, that steady cha- paycheck's pretty, you know, I, I don't really want to risk that or or man, I don't know, that might embarrass me or might be annoying or whatever. You know, I don't, maybe it's inconvenient. But we start thinking like that. It, it really, it's like, do I really believe God loves me? That he's, he's not going to take care of me? Do you see what I'm saying? He's not trying to embarrass you. He's not trying to annoy you or whatever. But listen, he's not afraid to stretch you. 
He's not afraid to get you out of your comfort zone. Man, I tell people all the time, it's not about who you are because I'll be talking to them about something that maybe is stirring. They're like, I don't know, man, that's just not who I am. Listen, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who is God calling you to be? You see what I'm saying? It, it's, it, are you willing to follow his lead? Are you willing to trust the process that he's leading you to and he's leading you through? Do you trust him? Do you trust him? God says, surely from long ago, your ear was not opened. Now, could he be talking about not listening? Like, you know, you've never really listened to me. He could be. But there was also a law in ancient Israel whereby Jews were not allowed to make lifetime slaves out of other Jews. They could, if someone was losing the farm, so to speak, they could indenture themselves to a fellow countryman uh, to get them out of debt. They could work through it and they could work for them for six years. And on the seventh year, they were to set them free. But if in this interim period, this six-year period of time, I'm, I'm I, you know, here I am, I'm working for Billy, working for Steve, whatever the case may be, man, they're great guys. I've come to love them. They take good care of me. They take care of my family. And so I go to them and say, look, I don't really want to leave. I kind of like it where I'm at. In fact, I'd love to stay. And so what they would do is they would take their fellow countrymen to the gates where the judges were, where the legal activity took place. And they, they, he would say, listen, I don't want to leave my master. I love my master. I want to stay with my master. And so what they would do is they would take an awl or a little punch and they would put them up to the door or the wall of the gate and they would put their ear to it and they would punch that awl through their ears. Essentially, they would pierce their ear. They would open their ear. And what that would signify, what that would testify is that now I'm going to serve him voluntarily out of my great love for him for life. There's no more like six year little say, I belong to you out of my love for you for the rest of my life. My ear has been opened. David seems to have been referring to this when he wrote, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. In other words, it's not my legalism that God is after. It's my love. He wants my loyalty. Allegiance voluntarily because I love him so deeply. Does this make sense to you? Now look at this. He says, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously or deceitfully or unfaithfully and were called, oh my, a transgressor from the womb. Why are people so deeply sinful? It's because their sinfulness is so deeply rooted. From the womb. It can be hard for people to hear. But the Bible teaches that we are sinners from the womb. We don't sin, therefore we become sinners. We're sinners, therefore we sin. You guys met my new granddaughter today. Little Miss Agnes Rose. Wonderful. Lover. She got me wrapped around her finger, right? But I'm going to tell you something. That girl can wail. I mean, she can weep when nothing's wrong. Can I just be 
frankly honest with you, she's a little liar. I mean, she's a sinner. She's manipulative. She wants picked up. She wants held, even though she knows. I mean, look, even at a month old, she knows how to get her way. There's nothing wrong, but I want this. I'm going to get this, you see. We come flawed from the factory. Listen, you don't have to teach little kids how to lie. You don't have to teach them how to manipulate. You don't have to teach them how to be stingy or selfish or how to bully another kid. You got to teach them how to share, how to be honest, how to be kind. We inherited a sin nature in Adam. When Adam sinned, all of humanity effectively sinned in him. He could not pass on what he no longer possessed. And so a sin nature was all that he possesses. So now this is all that he can pass on to others. Now, some people think that's not fair. Why should I have a sin nature? Because one man sinned. Listen. You wouldn't have done any better. I mean, he was the best that we had to offer. I mean, how many of you have, and I know they're not as popular as they used to be, but uh, humor me. How many of you have watched an Olympic athlete or watched an Olympic event and you said, man, because, you know, maybe it was someone who uh, is in the sport of your choice and there they are and they fail when push comes to shove and they just, they didn't quite get the gold. And you looked at them and you went, man, they should have let me compete. Because I'd have brought home the gold. No, you wouldn't have. Listen, if our very best couldn't do it, then there is no way you could have done it or I could have done it. Having said that, God in his wisdom allowed for that, this one man representing all type of principle, because if by one man's disobedience all were made sinners, come on somebody, then by one man's obedience, namely Jesus Christ, we could all be made righteous. So in your mind, it may work Against you, in truth, it works for you. Because Jesus did for you what you could never do for yourself. Okay? Now, look at verse 9. Guys, we're shifting gears. Stay with me. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Listen to me. Oh man, we see that a lot, don't we? Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Guys, he's saying all of creation will heed the word of God, except for man. He says, when I call to the heavens and the earth, they stand up together. The idea is in contrast to you. What we deserve is God's wrath. What he offers us in Jesus Christ is his mercy. 
Not because we're so great, did you see that? But because he's so great. He says, for my name's sake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain it, that is his wrath, from you. Now, there's a little bit of uh, ambiguity in this phrase. I have refined you, but not as silver. And I know some of you may be reading a different translation. I, I read from the New King James. But it, it states it a little different in a couple of different versions. But this is the essence of it, right? And so he could be saying, silver becomes pure when, the, when it gets put under the heat. But you're staying polluted. You know, I'm refining you, but not like silver. You don't respond like silver does, you know. One thing is for sure, man, God is getting ready to, can we just say, turn up the heat in their lives. To test them, he says, in the furnace, look at it, of affliction. And this is something else that bucks against a good swath of believers' theology. That God allows trials and tribulations into the lives of his own. That he will, our words are, test them, allow them to see what they're made of and refine them in the furnace of affliction. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not a popular point, but you've heard me say it from time to time. And it's something that we need to have anchored in our souls. And that is this, the chief aim of God in our lives is not to make us happy, is to make us holy. And listen to me, there's going to be plenty of time for happiness forever in his presence. Right? Psalm 1611. In your, at your right hand, you know, in, in, the, in your presence is, is the fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Guys, this life is the smelting process. It is breaking us down. It is building us up. It is refining us. It is purifying us. It is removing the dross of sin and self-serving and stubbornness in our lives. And verse 14, all of you assemble yourselves and hear who among them has declared these things. The Lord loves him and he shall do his pleasure on Babylon. And he's talking about the deliverance of Israel and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him and his way will prosper. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river. Who has peace like a river in their soul? This is where this comes from, right? And your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body like the grains of the sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Guys, obviously there's a whole lot we could talk about here. But many of the things that are mentioned here I've spoken of in previous passages. And so I'm just going to highlight a couple of things. Number one, I want you to see that the Lord's dealings with Israel and by way of application, you and me, is not 
narcissistic. It is not egotistical. It is not self-centered. The refining, the purifying, the rebuke, the redemption, the deliverance, the why behind the what, it's found in verse 14. You might just underline it. The Lord loves him. The motive behind God's interaction with his people is his love for his people. In verse 16, we see the Messiah pleading with his people. He says, come near to me. We see another reference to the triunity of God here. The Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Okay. Uh, Verse 17, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit. Now, he says, who leads you by the way you should go. I don't want you to be too quick to think here that this is saying God teaches you how to become rich. Though he certainly teaches us responsibility with our resources. But keep the context. God was teaching them through affliction. Even the refiner's fire, the furnace of affliction is for their profit. It's for our good. It's Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. You can just write it down out there and and look it up later. Everything that God allows into the equation of our lives, if received and responded to correctly, that is biblically, is for our eternal good and his eternal glory. That's why he says in verse 18, and and guys, I just, I know time is slipping away, but I don't want you to miss these things. He says, oh, that you had heeded my commandments. What's the New Testament vernacular? Jesus say say that like this. Oh, that you were doers of my word, right? The doers of the word. Disobedience renders unfulfilled potential. Disobedience renders unfulfilled potential. Obedience brings blessing, peace like a river, righteousness like waves of the sea. Not a stagnant little pool, not a drop here and there. God will keep pouring, flowing peace into your life. It will be bountiful and strong, life-giving, satisfying, righteousness as certain, as unyielding, as unending, as reliable as the waves of the sea just coming and coming and flowing over you and covering you, you see. He says, your descendants would be like the grains of the sand. Guys, God is telling us that peace, righteousness, and listen to me, children are a blessing from the Lord. I could not be more ashamed at the rate That our nation literally throws children away in the form of abortion. There are more people on the adoption waiting list in the United States than there are babies waiting to be adopted. God is saying, I want to bless your life. I want to give you peace. I want to give you righteousness and a heritage from the Lord but you're unwilling to receive it as demonstrated through your disobedience to my word, your unwillingness to seek me and walk in a true relationship with me. Listen, disobedience results in, renders unfulfilled potential. He says, I want to do it. You won't let me do it because you're walking in disobedience. Now, look at verse 20. Guys, I promise we're near... Near the end here, he says, um, 
Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing, declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob and they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. Two things. Number one, God promises deliverance from Babylon. He wants them to see his hand in it, declare his praises through it. Look what God is doing, you see. When, listen, when God delivers you, you should praise him. Number two, we see this principle in play where God guides, God provides. Now, he says, when God delivered them from Egypt, he made sure they didn't go thirsty. They were going through the desert. He met their needs, causing, now maybe not in the way that they would have thought or have expected. I doubt that anyone had this grand vision of water gushing out from a rock. But God met their needs. He provided nonetheless. And he assures them that when he delivers them from Babylon, that he will provide for them again on their journey back home. Okay, bonus observation. God wanted them to come out from among the Babylonians and be separate. He said, I'm going to deliver you. I want to call you out in like manner. When God delivers you from the world, though you are in the world, you're not to be of the world. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. If he's delivered you, you do well to declare his praise. Okay? I look at verse 22. We're going to close here. I don't know who my closer, one, two, however many we have. Okay, let's look at verse 22. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So what have we just discovered? Obedience to the word of God brings peace like a river. In contrast, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Oh, they're good at faking it. Uh, masking their inner misery, uh, throwing parties and trying to ignore the inward restlessness. But guys, when you're without hope, being without God in the world, there is no peace. Peace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so submit your life to Him, render obedience to His Word, and you'll have peace like a river in your soul. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for the timely manner of your word. And I pray that it would find good soil in our hearts today. God, that we would be soft as clay in your hands. Not stiff-necked, not hard-hearted, not stubborn and obstinate and all the things that we have a tendency to be. Surely you want to do a further work, a new thing in our lives. And I just pray, Lord, that we wouldn't miss it, but that we would be yielded to it for the glory of your name. And so God, pour out your peace. God, we commit our cares to you. And we would ask, Lord, the peace that passes all understanding would be poured out upon us. Be glorified in our lives. And guys, while we're in this prayer position, we're preparing our hearts to partake of communion. If you've not made peace with God, you don't know the peace of God. But you can. Christ died for you. 
Forgiveness awaits you. Peace is available to you. I'm telling you, turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ today. Don't put it off another day. Hey, I mean, at the risk of sounding cliche, the new year, what a great time for new life. I don't know, maybe everyone here knows God, loves God. That's cool. But maybe you've come here today, maybe a friend's drug you along or someone's, you know, asked you to come or you just popped in of your own volition and you're like, man, I, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, this is, this I need, Lord, I need new life. Well, I want to pray for you. I'm just going to ask you to humble yourself and just show me who you are. Just raise your hand. If I see your hand, I'll acknowledge it. You can put it back down if you want. But I want to give you a moment here to say, you know what? And I, want you, I don't care how young you are, how old you are, where you've been, what you've done, who you're with, who's in front, behind, beside you. It's between you and the Lord. If you need Christ to come into your life, forgive you of your sin, just raise your hand. All right? Is there anyone here? This is moments for God's knocking on the door of your heart. I just don't want you to miss it through hard-heartedness or that risk of, I don't know, man, you know, this is, this is weird. God bless you. Anyone else? This is the moment to which God is opening the door of salvation to you. Anyone else I can pray for? Okay. Well, Lord, we just thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that you love us. And Lord, that you died for us. That we might know you, be forgiven by you, and live with you forever. The Bible is clear that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But if we confess our sin, He's faithful, He's just to forgive us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so I would just encourage you, you raise your hand, you said, you know what, this is, this is happening right now in me, this is real to me, I need this. Just go before the Lord of your own volition and just tell Him from your heart, God, I'm, I am a sinner. I'm, and Lord, I believe on you. I'm putting my weight, my trust in you for the forgiveness of my sin. Lord, forgive me my sin and fill me with the person and the power of your Holy Spirit. Change my life and be glorified in me. And Lord, may I live my life this day forward for you all the days of my life. And thanks for putting my name in your book of life. I want to encourage you that if you pray a prayer like that, God has heard you. Christ has come into your life. He's filled you with his Holy Spirit. Believe it, receive it, rejoice in it. 